In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome, visitors, to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week we conjure spells for you about the seasons of life. It's the penultimate episode of Season 14. This season seems to have flown by. I'm immensely proud of our team for continuing the high quality of work during these most unusual times. Next week is our big season finale, so brace yourself for that extravaganza. We'll then be taking three weeks to provide you with some hiatus episodes and perhaps a special episode of original content. Fresh stories only newly decay... Well, let's just wait and see. And of course, there will be plenty of bonus episodes coming out for Season Pass 14 members. And Season 15 will kick off on August 30th. And I want to welcome back a new voice actor to our team. Yes, you heard that right. Voice actor Danielle McRae has joined our team after being featured originally way back in Season 4. Danielle is a very talented Los Angeles-area voice actor with a wealth of experience acting in video games, animation, anime, and commercials. We're so glad to have you back with us, Danielle. And finally... I'm happy to announce we have a winner in our movie poster contest. It was a very tight race between our five finalists, but one story squeaked ahead by the slimmest of margins. Our great illustrator, Sabu, will be designing a poster for the story, or should I say stories? Yes, the infamous Search and Rescue series is the chosen poster. In the coming weeks, we'll announce the winners of the mounted posters after Sabu works his design magic on the poster. A big thanks to everyone who participated in selecting the winner. So, we're bracing for an exciting summer ahead. Let's get to it. Now, close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale we join Catherine, a woman caring for her ailing mother. When you've been looking after a sick relative for a long while, watching their slow decline, it's not uncommon to do your mourning while they're still around, when you have time to prepare. But in this tale, shared with us by author Scott Newman, we discover that there are some things about impending death that you can't prepare for. Performing this tale are Danielle McRae and Nicole Doolin. 
So treasure the time with your loved ones and remember the good times, because sometimes the end isn't what you expect. That much is clear when you hear about my mom's death. I'd always had a great relationship with my mom. My dad died when I was young, and she raised me all by herself without much outside help. As the years went by and my role began to shift from daughter to caregiver, it pained me to watch as her once strong sense of independence slowly melted away. She's recently passed away, and you might be surprised to learn I'm not completely sure how I feel about it. Her death was both sudden and traumatic. But more importantly, it has remained seemingly unexplainable despite an ongoing investigation. I've been left with the fear I may never find out what truly happened. It was about a week ago when it started. I had just left her house, having had stocked her up on groceries and supplies for the next few days. As a particularly brutal snowstorm was predicted to hit the area. She hadn't said much when I was there, which I took note of, as she had always been a pretty chatty person. She more or less sat in her living room chair and watched me closely as I moved about the house, only to stop when I needed to ask her where she wanted me to put a particular item. This winter had been pretty kind to her. For the past few years, She'd been in and out of the hospital with pneumonia or the flu. She refused to even discuss the option of moving into an assisted living facility or into my house to live with me. So, after some discussion last year, we called a truce. As part of our agreement for her to remain at home, she would call me on a daily basis to let me know she was okay. I know how much it irritated her. But it did put me at a greater ease to know she was okay. And we said morning would be a good time since I didn't have to go into work until the afternoon. I worked second shift at a factory. I left her house that day with the understanding she would continue to honor her side of the agreement. I had no idea what was to come next. The next morning came and I hadn't heard from her yet. I had to restrain myself from picking up the phone and calling her. So I decided to give it a little more time. I went about my normal chores and watched my favorite soap operas. But as the hours ticked by, and when I was only about an hour from starting my shift, I decided to take action. I punched in her number on the speed dial. It felt like the phone rang forever because she finally answered. She didn't say hello or anything else at first. All I could hear was raspy, heavy breathing, like she had rushed in from another room and didn't want to miss the chance to talk to someone. I asked her if she was there, nothing more but labored breathing. As I listened, I couldn't help but think, looks like another trip to the hospital, as if responding to what I had thought. The breathing suddenly cut off, and the line went silent. She started to speak, 
but it was very quiet, like somebody trying to whisper so no one else would hear. Whatever she said was almost unintelligible, and I told her I couldn't hear her. I told her she needed to try and speak up. I started to panic when all of a sudden... Hello, this is your mother. I am just fine. Nothing to worry about, my dear. The way she had spoken certain words sounded strange, like she put emphasis on certain syllables and said it all without any sense of emotion. It sounded robotic, and there was no trace of her southern accent. Nothing about it sounded right. Good night. And then she hung up. I stood there for a moment with the phone still to my ear before I put it back on the receiver. The entire call left me feeling uncomfortable as goosebumps prickled my arms. I wanted to call her back, but I didn't have the time as I had to get ready for work. I figured I'd give her a call at my dinner break, even though I knew she'd be mad about it. Extra calls to check up on her weren't part of our agreement, she said. I was at the end of my shift when I saw I had gotten a text message. I didn't have the chance to call mom as I had planned earlier, as I had been pulled into an unscheduled department meeting. We weren't supposed to have our phones on the floor, but I promised my supervisor to keep it on vibrate. But sometimes, I'd get so busy I wouldn't notice. I unlocked the screen and was surprised to see who the text had been from. It said, Mom. The thing was, my mom didn't know how to text. She never wanted to learn. In fact, she usually despised having to learn to use new technology of any kind. She still played games on an old Hewlett-Packard and wanted to keep only her landline for calls. She didn't even have the capability to send a text message. The message was only one word repeated. Hello. I immediately stopped in my tracks and called her. This time... The phone rang only once before she answered. And when she spoke, her voice sounded like it had been put on overdrive. Hello, 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 hello. Over and over it kept going. Each time the tone sounded exactly the same. I pulled the phone away from my ear as her voice carried so loud it hurt to listen. Even as I did, she continued without interruption, like someone pushing a button on a doll to make it repeat a phrase over and over again. I finally spoke out loud, not caring if anyone around me overheard. Mom, stop it! My coworkers nearby looked at me and exchanged worried glances. I almost shouted again, but then the line went dead. A coworker of mine, somebody I considered a friend, approached me. She put her hand on my shoulder and she asked me if I was okay. I just looked at her, at a total loss for words. I felt dizzy and almost nauseous. I said something about my mom not feeling well and she gave me a hug. She offered to try and help, but I declined. She asked me a number of times if I was sure when 
I repeated myself more convincingly. She continued on and said she would see me tomorrow. I walked out to the dimly lit lot and couldn't remember where I'd parked. In the expanse before me, all the cars looked the same. So many different thoughts raced through my head. Was mom okay? Why was she acting so strange? Was she sick again? After I wandered around in the dark for a bit, I eventually found my car. I got in and sat still for a few minutes, just staring out the window. A car horn went off in the distance and seemed to bring me back. If mom was in trouble, she needed help. I went to punch in 911 when my phone began to vibrate. The screen said, Mom, the feeling of nausea started to come back. I answered. My mom didn't own a piano. She had learned to play as a child, but hadn't been able to do it for years due to arthritis in her hands. And then I heard someone humming. They were humming something that sounded like an old-fashioned tune. After a bit memory of a song from my childhood began to push its way to the surface, and my eyes started to well up, I recognized the tune. It was one mom said she would hum to me all the time when I was a baby. Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Mama's gonna buy you a mockingbird. I cried silently as she continued on. A part of me wanted her to go on forever. It sounded so beautiful. And I had always hoped to have a daughter of my own one day and sing to her. But cancer had taken away any chance of that. I said the only thing my mind would allow to come out. Mommy. Come see your mother. I felt a bony, cold hand touch my shoulder closest to the phone. I couldn't bring myself to turn around or look in the rearview mirror. I dropped the phone in fright. All I heard next was a series of loud bangs, like something crashing repeatedly into a wall. Then a few moments passed before I heard a pathetic whimper in my mom's normal, aged voice. Help me, Catherine. The call ended. I cried and called out uselessly from my mom. Still terrified to look behind me, I somehow found the courage to dial 911 and then I raced over to my mom's house. What happened next is where the details of my mom's death elude explanation. When the emergency services arrived on site, there was no answer at the door, and all the lights in the house were off. They eventually found her at the bottom of her basement steps. Her body was cold and looked mangled. The police searched the house and found no signs of a break-in. She was transported to the hospital, where she was soon pronounced dead. The theory was she had fallen down the basement stairs and died from sustained injuries. There was evidence to support this. But what was most disturbing was what the medical examiner said about her time of death. 
He said, based on present rigor mortis and state of decomposition, she had been dead for almost 24 hours. 24 hours. She must have fallen soon after I'd left the day before. I told them it wasn't possible. I told them I had heard her voice only a short time ago, over the phone. I had the strange text message and the phone call from her number all in that time period. They couldn't give me an explanation for any of it. The police never found another phone at her house. None of it made any sense. If it hadn't been my mom on the other end of the line, who had I been speaking to? These past couple of days, I have scoured the internet for answers. The possibilities range from demonic possession to alternate realities. None of it helped, though. I feel like my mom was trying to hide something from me. Maybe something from her past. She often would skip over details when recalling certain events in her earlier years. Maybe something she didn't want me to know about. Or maybe she did it all to protect me from something that had finally caught up to her. I may have had a great relationship with my mom, but now I feel like I never truly knew who she was. I just can't help but feel in the end I failed her. If you live on the first floor of an apartment building, the last thing you want is to look up and see water dripping from the ceiling. Being underneath a flooding unit might seem like utter nightmare fuel. Damp, dripping, or even the ceiling collapsing. But in this tale, shared with us by author Alexander Hay, we learn that it's not the people below who need to be afraid, it's the firemen called to the source of the downpour. Performing this tale, are Andy Cresswell, Joe Sheary, David Alt, Penny Scott Andrews, and Erica Sanderson. So be careful when you're waist high in water. It's not just soggy floorboards you need to worry about. It's time to plead for someone to turn off the taps. As a fireman, I've seen all sorts of horrible things. Bodies charred and burned. People who've suffocated on smoke. Others who've thrown themselves off balconies just to get away from the flames. People screaming as their homes, their entire lives, literally go up in smoke. But the one thing that stays with me to this day doesn't involve fire. No, quite the opposite. It was water. So much water. Water up to your waist. It started as a pretty standard shift. 
Barry had blocked the sink again. Linda was shouting at her kids on the phone. Imran was swearing at the television as Arsenal broke his heart. And the chief was fixated on Candy Crush, despite being a grown man in his 50s. Me and the rest of the watch were dossing around in the lounge, arguing over who was the best Bond. The only odd thing was that it was really quiet for a weekend shift. Too quiet. Sometimes you just want something to happen. Just let the tension out. So, it was a weird sort of relief when we got the shout. A few minutes later, our fire engine was charging down the road and into a residential street two miles from the station. The man who rang 999 met us when we parked outside the house where the call was made. Glad you could make it. He looked like an angry, balding hamster in glasses. Turns out he was a user experience consultant for some social network or other. Chief climbed out of the fire engine. Made it here as soon as we could. Well, my flat is flooded because the old bat upstairs. She must have left the taps on or something. All right, all right. Chief began walking up to the main door. Not that one. The one at the side. I took a moment to check the building out. It was an old Edwardian house converted into two flats. Judging by the quality of the brickwork and the tall, sharp edges of the building, it must have been a rich eccentric's house once. Now it was yet another buy-to-let property, with the upstairs and downstairs turned into separate flats. I'm getting flooded. Are you or are you not going to get in? The chief pounded the front door of the upstairs, then shook his head. Nah, no answer. He looked at me. Can you work your magic? Of course I can. Shall we get the ladder? My main speciality is breaking and entering. Not in a criminal sense, you understand, but I am very good at wedging windows open and climbing in, which is often something a firefighter has to do. I wasn't as good as Darren, who was a past master at getting into houses, but he got done for actual burglary on his days off, and we don't talk about him anymore. I clambered up the ladder and set about opening the window. It was one of those old-fashioned sash numbers, and in rather good condition, though the frame's white paint had begun to show the slightest signs of crumbling and cracking. Part of me was disappointed. Sash windows are dead easy to open. Give me a nice fold-up window or a pivot. I wedged the window open and pushed the sash up. It was unlocked, which was a relief, as it meant not having to break the glass but that suggested to me that someone might still be inside. Why hadn't they turned off the water? I looked down and gave the thumbs up to the chief. Inside, the living room seemed dark. So dark, in fact, that it was hard to see inside. 
I realized the house faced west, so the sun didn't shine on its front until late in the day, and the way the roof pitched out over the windows stopped even more light getting in. I was halfway in by now, one leg on the windowsill, the other still on the ladder. Shall I let you in? Yeah, but check the flat first. I nodded and climbed into the house. I went in via the living room. I flinched with surprise as I got down off the windowsill and suddenly found myself waist deep in water. The loud splash and sudden coldness hit me with a sharp jolt. I could see that the deep water extended out of the living room and into the hallway. It looked pretty level, so I guessed the whole place was like that. I wondered for a moment how the entire flat was flooded, but I could hear the distant rumble of taps in the kitchen. How is it up there? Absolutely flooded. I'm going to turn the taps off. Ceiling's gonna fall in, my wife will go spare. Whatever. I began to wade and slosh through the water. I could see objects floating past me, like shoes, books, a plastic beaker, and even an old ornamental ashtray, which looked like it had never been used. But what was really odd was the water itself. It was filthy a nasty, dark, grey sludge that you couldn't see through. And it stank. Not like sewage, but more like peat or old soil or rotting vegetation. For the briefest moment, I thought I heard a splashing noise some distance away in another part of the flat. But it was too faint, and I must have imagined it. Or so I thought. Instead, I decided to focus on the job and survey the room I was in. Below the waterline, the entire place was ruined. But everything above the waterline seemed tidy, dusted, if a little faded. It was an old-fashioned but well-kept flat, at least until the water destroyed it. I saw photographs on the mantelpiece, yellowing coloured pictures taken back when you had to take film to be developed. People in clothes from the 70s and 80s, smiling. They looked happy. The flat-screen TV was half-submerged but looked relatively new. I guess they really shouldn't have bothered. I lurched into the hallway and saw why the water hadn't flooded out down the stairs. A series of steps led down from the entrance, reflecting the fact that the house had been converted just a bit awkwardly into two flats. This meant the entire flat was a kind of basin now half filled with dirty water. It wasn't watertight, of course. It must have been leaking down to the flat below. And if we didn't stop the flooding and pump it out, the ceiling would cave in. I carried on pushing my way through the water, past all the debris, towards the kitchen. The rest of the flat was dark and cold, not to mention wet. I had to wonder what it would have been like living there before the flood. The place struck me as strangely gloomy and miserable. Or maybe that was just me wading through the water. It was hard work, and the filthy water made me feel uncomfortable, to say the least. I wasn't usually this queasy about dirty water, but as I felt how it rippled and flowed around me as I moved, I felt an odd sense of revulsion. 
Finally, I lurched into the kitchen and the source of the flooding. Both taps were on full blast, still spewing dirty water. I headed over to the sink, trying not to grimace as I stepped on all sorts of things that squelched or cracked underfoot. I hoped none of it was glass. Apart from potentially cutting me open, it also risked tearing my uniform, letting in the filth. With one final push, I made it to the sink and turned off the taps. It was surprisingly hard, the flow making it really tough. Yeah, but the place is completely flooded. We need to get the pumps in or the whole place is going to cave in. Any sign of the woman who lives there? He had a point, but not thought of that. Where was she? I don't think she's here. Just to make sure, I called out. Hello? Nothing. Weird. Mr. Triple here says he usually hears her go out. Can you look around? Will do. I got ready to wade through the water again. But then I stopped. She was staring at me. Her body had floated up to the surface. I'd seen people who'd asphyxiated before. I always thought that dying of smoke inhalation and drowning was pretty much the same thing. I was wrong. A drowned body bulges and bloats. It stares. She was a middle-aged woman in her pajamas and a dressing gown. Her feet were bare. For some reason, it made me sad to think that she wasn't even wearing slippers when she died. Her body was floating chest up, but her head was laid on one side, the face half submerged in the murk of the filthy water. One eye staring straight at me, empty. The mouth was wide open, like it was halfway between swallowing the water and drowning in it. I realized to my horror that I may well have walked on her corpse before it floated up. The body floated uneasily towards me. I've dealt with death before, but this time I couldn't help but move back in horror as the corpse nearly touched me. The eye kept looking. It was then that I noticed the injuries on those parts of her body not covered by sopping wet clothes. Deep black bruises on what I could see of her forearms, her collarbone and neck, the side of her face, her ankle. She'd been held down, but had struggled desperately. The injury suggested it had taken more than one to drown the woman, and she had taken some time to die. For a brief moment, I saw a vision of her gasping for breath, struggling, even as strong hands kept pushing her back down in the water. Briefly, she managed to get her head out of the murk, but then another hand pushed her under. Perhaps they toyed with her, letting the poor woman breathe before half-drowning her again, until they got bored and just finished off the job. Like I say, fire doesn't scare me. What I saw there, and what it meant, that did.
Yeah, Gov. I found her. She's dead. Can you open the front door and let us in? Yeah, I'll do that now. Oh. Hello? But that's all I can remember hearing. Because I saw the body suddenly pulled down back into the black grey water. For a moment, everything was still. I didn't dare move. But instead, I looked at the filthy, stagnant water, which seemed eerily still all of a sudden. But then, it started to bubble and ripple in three places, as if something... Well, some things were surging out through the depths. And they were. The water exploded as they arose. I pressed instinctively against the kitchen worktop, trying to keep away from what was in front of me. Eyeless sockets leered at me from grinning skull faces, perched on top of vague, slimy, mulched imitations of the human form. Their flesh was sludge, rot and vegetation, bone and sticks alike sticking out of what were presumably their bodies. Imagine everything foul from the deepest bottom of a marsh or a dark, lonely river, given form and purpose and hatred. That was what was looking at me. For a brief moment, they contemplated me. Then, long, grasping arms tipped with skeletal hands reached out towards me. I tried to keep away, but suddenly the creatures exploded into liquid slurry and surged towards me, reassembling into their disgusting forms as they seized me with fleshless, slimy fingers. I tried to struggle, but I could already feel the tips of their finger bones jamming into me as they pulled me away from the worktop and towards the centre of the kitchen, dirty water splashing everywhere as I struggled. They were strong, far stronger than piles of dead filth had any reason to be. One had already grabbed my left arm, another my right leg. The third grasped my throat, its eyeless socket staring directly at me as its fleshless, grimy mouth dropped open. And a strangely dry, desiccated rasp came out from what might have been a throat. I panicked and tried to throw them off, but the two things holding my arm and leg simply used both hands to hold me still, while the third thing began to push me below the water. I gasped for air as I felt the tainted liquid enter my mouth and nose. For a brief moment, my head was submerged under the water, but I managed to surface again for a moment. Now all three things were pushing me under. I tried to punch the thing with its hand around my throat, but my fist just passed through the grot, which reassembled back into a leering skull face straight after. Still, I fought, 
but I knew I was losing. Those things were too strong, and they were toying with me now, I knew it. All it took was more than a fraction of their strength, and I would be under the water, drowning. I realized what was about to happen to me had only just happened to the woman. Was it that easy to die? All I remember at that point was managing to get an arm free and smashing something off the worktop. A strange throbbing sensation. Then, darkness. You stupid bastard! I heard Linda growling as I came to on the stretcher. What the hell do you think you were playing at? I felt a strange bouncing sensation and then realized I was being carried down the stairs. The dank, moist fog of the flat suddenly gave way to the sharp sting of fresh air. I squinted as my eyes got used to daylight again. For a brief moment, I wondered if this was what the afterlife was like. But it turned out they'd managed to rescue me from the flat after the chief and Barry kicked its door in. And they found me floating unconscious in the kitchen. It turns out I knocked the blender into the water, which was still plugged in. The electrical shock blew out the fuses in the flat. And me, too. I realized it had saved my life. Those things must have been vulnerable to electricity, too. They certainly weren't there when my mates came in to pull me out. We were worried sick about you. Linda fumed as the paramedics loaded me onto the ambulance. I felt like I'd just been hit with a sledgehammer. But I could make out the rest of the watch rubbernecking as my stretcher was locked into place. Dimly, I could just about see the high-volume pumping unit, its pipes being fed into the windows of the flat by firefighters on ladders, and Mr. UX Hamster being calmed down by his wife. Whether their flat got flooded or not was no longer top of my list of concerns. For some reason. You're a dickhead. Did you hear that? A dickhead. It was like I was now one of her kids. It was a weird honour. The paramedic grimaced. Steady on, love. He's had a big shock. Not as bad as he'll have when I get him later. The ambulance doors closed. Bye, Linda. I looked over to my side. Sitting in the ambulance was the chief, back to playing Candy Crush on his phone. Don't worry, mate. You'll be okay. Did you see the water? Did you find her? Chief looked up. Concern took hold of his face. Yeah. I saw it all. But you didn't see them, I thought, as I drifted off to sleep. They took out her body after the flap was pumped out. The post-mortem concluded death by misadventure. The official line was that her flat got flooded, she got an electric shock, and then drowned. Quite where she got all the injuries from was never mentioned. 
or where I got mine. Electric shocks don't leave you with scratches, tears and bruises. They never publicly admitted the tests they did on the water either. It was full of soil, vegetation and gunge, but from an old river somewhere up in the Scottish Highlands. How in the hell that ended up surging out of some poor woman's kitchen taps in North London is a question no one wanted to ask. Two weeks later, and I was back at work. No one really talked about what really happened, and I didn't either. I think that's how the world stays sane. It just pretends the insanity isn't happening. You're probably expecting me to tell you that there was some reason why that woman was killed. She must have drowned someone when she was young, or couldn't save a childhood friend when they got into trouble while swimming, or she got cursed by a magical bank vole or something. Well, I can tell you none of that happened at all. She had a half-decent, uneventful life with no lingering tragedies. Nothing which would attract vengeful water spirits to come take their revenge. It just... happened. Deserve didn't come into it. She died because they picked her for no other reason than they could. I'm sure of it now. I can imagine how it must have felt. Suddenly finding yourself in the middle of filthy water, completely flooding and destroying everything you've ever owned. Coming face to face with those things. The utter panic as they ram your head into the dankness. Have you tried screaming underwater? Nobody can hear. That's what terrifies me. The water. I still have dreams and flashbacks about it. At work, I can block it out. Even when I've had a deal with other floods, I just pretend I'm walking into a house fire instead. Fire's honest. You know where you stand with fire. But water... Water is treacherous. It makes you feel safe. But it kills every bit as much as fire does. Maybe more. I remember the cold and the stink that day. And those... things. There are times I come off a shift, get home, lock the door and just collapse onto the ground, sobbing. Rivers and ponds and even the sea, it all terrifies me now. I can't have showers on my own anymore, just baths. And even then, I have to shove corks into the taps, just in case... Just in case. No one in the watch knows. They can't know. They'd think I'm mad. Maybe I am. But that doesn't mean it can't happen again, or hasn't happened so many times before. But as I run the taps or operate the fire hose, I keep checking the water to see if it's still streaming out clear or whether it's turning dark and I see traces of dirt, twigs and slime beginning to come out. Sometimes I can almost swear they do. Until I realize I'm seeing things and the water is clear again. But what I do know is this. If you're ever at a sink and the water starts to run black, please run. Run. 
get out. Get as far away as you can. And if you can't, turn off the taps. Make sure they're off. Because I know what lurks in the water. And we are its prey. In the third and final part of the Locksmith Saga, following his black bag job and dalliance with glory, we find our hero with a bit of a dilemma on his hands. He seems to have freed an ancient god of destruction, which, as you can imagine, isn't the best for the world. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jeff Miller, our master of unlocking won't give up that easily. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Mick Wingert, Graham Rowett, Peter Lewis, Nicole Doolin, and Jessica McAvoy. So lock all the doors and bar all the windows, hunker down and let the locksmith deal with everything by going back to where it all began and encountering the Corvid. I woke up screaming late in the afternoon, lying in a bed stinking of sweat and piss. My sleep had been plagued by nightmares, endless reruns of that poor cop's body sinking into a wriggling mass of vermin, and Maeve's terrified eyes staring out from that column of swarming bugs. Wait, are you confused? Maybe? Okay. Let me quickly recap what happened the last time we spoke. The night before, I'd robbed the evidence room of my neighborhood's local police station. I'd been hired by an old acquaintance of mine, Maeve, to recover cash, cocaine, and guns that her son had lost in a drug deal gone bad. The deal was, I'd get to keep the cash. But even though I used a hand of glory... It's a candle made from a human hand. It paralyzes people when bathed in its light. Well, things went really south. The evidence lockers didn't contain what I expected to find. Instead, I found bone meal, squirt guns, and Monopoly money. Which really fucked me up. Then, the class ring that was embedded in one of the fingers of the Hand of Glory dropped off and all those toys and fertilizer became the loot I'd expected. If I'd thought I was fucked up before, I was really fucked up then. Especially when a swarm of bugs erupted from the evidence room officer's chest. I was trying not to hyperventilate back at my apartment when Maeve arrived to collect, not bothering to unlock or even open my door. Turns out, she had secrets of her own. After the spirit that had possessed her performed a truly disturbing magic rite, I finally met my boss, a middle-aged woman who called herself Millie, among other names. Anyway, 
After I recovered from waking up in a bed soaked in my own bodily fluids, I spent the next hour cleaning my tool bag and tools, plus washing and disinfecting my mattress and linens, all accompanied by shots of Jameson. After I hung the sheets off my balcony to dry, I found the courage to check my phone. The precinct robbery was all anyone was talking about. Three cops were dead, though no cause of death had been released, and all evidence in the Kelly case had been stolen. As for Niall Kelly, he had disappeared overnight from his locked cell. The Armenian gangsters? Shanked. One in the shower, the other in the yard. The DA was giving fiery interviews about how the local authorities were going to bring the hammer down on the Armenian mob. But it wasn't all bad news. There was no mention anywhere of a mousy little jerk creeping around the station hallways with a flaming severed hand. After a quick meal of boxed mac and cheese, I broke down the AR-15 and dumped it, the pistols, and all but a few grand of the money into an old duffel bag, which I tossed off the bridge into a river on my way to the pub. I took a seat at the bar, grabbed a pint and a shot from Ben, and settled into a long iPhone session researching Millie's many monikers. It didn't take long before a theme emerged. Nurgle, for instance, had been a Mesopotamian god that once destroyed the city of Babylon. Afterward, the other gods were all... What the fuck, Nurgle? And he was like, Hey, shit happens. I was just raging. Chill. And they were like, Okay, cool. Thanks for leaving a few people alive. That was real nice of you, man. Beelzebub is, of course, the Lord of the Flies. That sure as hell seemed appropriate. Reshef was a Canaanite, an Egyptian deity of pestilence and war. As for Legion, they were a bunch of demons who possessed some poor guy in the New Testament. Jesus drove them into a herd of hogs, and they all ran headlong into a lake and drowned. Can't say I blamed them. I ordered a triple. Ben frowned, passing me the drink. You looking to black out early or something? Yeah. I planned on ignoring him, but just as soon as he turned to leave, I had a thought. Hey, you know the orange hoodie guy? The one who gave you the heebie-jeebies? He turned, squinting. Yeah. I ain't seen him in months, though. Why? Who introduced you to him? He scowled and quickly glanced left and right to see if anyone was close enough to hear before moving in close. Fuck you. I don't give up names, especially when the guy goes MIA right after you fucked up his job. I didn't fuck anything up, Ben. Come on. I'm in a bad spot, and I've never asked you for your help for free. Ben crossed his arms. Okay, I'm listening. I hadn't worked through a plan. But Millie seemed to have respected Orange Hoodie Guy, at least. I had to start somewhere, and it's not like I could stroll down to Walmart and pick up a Banish a Magic Bug Woman kit. Look, let's just say you're not the only one who thinks I might have made him disappear. I know how it looks. I get it. But that's not what happened. We sorted out the misunderstanding. Plus, you know, I'm not a tough guy. I've never carried a knife, much less a gun. If I don't find him, though, some very scary people will turn me into compost before the end of the month. And I'm willing to pay a fair price to avoid that. He thought for a few seconds, pursing his lips. Hmm. 
three grand, and my name doesn't pass your lips. Meet me in 15. A little later in the back alley, I handed him almost all the cash I had left. He gave me a folded scrap of paper and poked me in the chest. Hey, you use my name, and I'll come looking for you. He went back into the bar. I just stared at the note. In one corner of the torn sheet was a pretty little printed purple flower. I didn't even bother dialing the phone number. I just jogged home to grab my tools, my lucky jersey, and the dead guy's ring. Against my better judgment, I also tossed in what was left of the hand of glory, about half a palm. It made a beeline to Ben's apartment. I knew that stationery. I'd met Ben outside his apartment a few times about jobs back when a couple of plainclothes cops started hanging out at the bar. They got made before they ordered their first Guinness. Anyway, I sipped a coffee across the street from Ben's building and hurried out as soon as I saw an elderly man approaching the door with his arms full of groceries. I held back until he entered his code and ran over to hold the door open for him. He smiled and I slipped inside behind him. I'd gotten the apartment number off the call box outside. Ben should really complain to the super about that. And his door was simple to Jimmy open. The small apartment was clean, but not obsessively so. Bed was made, clothes folded and put away, a couple of bowls and silverware drying in the dish drainer. He had a laptop, but it was password protected. And if he'd written down the password, I couldn't find it. His calendar, though, caught my attention. It was affixed to the wall next to his desk. Muscle cars hung over a grid of the month's days. After a quarter of them were blacked out completely with the big WTF marked in Sharpie across a couple of the others. I flipped through it. He started blacking out calendar days right around the time I did the black bag job. Aside from the calendar, though, nothing else struck me as odd until I slipped on the dead man's ring. The small television in his bedroom was now a safe, and his dog-eared collection of Patrick O'Brien novels was a set of journals, every page filled with neat spider-like characters in a language or code I did not understand. I swiped a duffel bag from his closet and took the whole lot of them. The safe was frustrating as hell. Every time I heard a tumbler click, something else inside would snap. I've never heard a lock make noises like that. I swear, a couple of times the combination seemed to just up and reset itself as I was about to crack it. I finally got so frustrated that I put the ring on an end table, grabbed a meat tenderizing hammer from the kitchen, and smashed the television screen into a million little bits. Stupid, I know, but even I have a breaking point, and I'd barreled way past mine several months before. I snatched up the ring and was about to go, when I glanced back at the TV safe, whatever the fuck it was. What I saw made me laugh for a solid ten minutes. Tears running down my face like my mother had died. The front of the safe was all bashed to shit, and the door was half hanging open on a broken hinge. Once I got a hold of myself, I pried the door off of the crowbar and shined my iPhone's flashlight inside. I could see the crown royal bag, but now it was glowing a sickly purple and royaled as if it were alive, 
like a stomach trying to digest food. There was also a sheaf of flowered stationery that smelled faintly of lilac, a fancy pen, and the key Mr. Black Bag had given me to use on the job. I smiled. Change of plans. I now had something of value to someone, or something, that I figured could probably get me out of this mess, and I knew just where to take it. The place where all this began. The jewelry store. Thankful I was wearing gloves, I first made sure the Crown Royal sack was cinched tightly shut, and then put everything from the safe inside my tool bag. I glanced at my watch. If I hurried, I could still make it to the jewelry store before it closed. I grabbed a laptop and stack of cash I'd found behind a ventilation grate, and tossed the place. I wanted it to look like a couple of crackheads had broken in looking for meth money. I was just about to leave when I heard footsteps in the hall. I ducked into the bathroom and closed the door just seconds before Ben entered, and he immediately started cursing and kicking shit all over the place. Holy shit! I heard the squeak oh, no. of the ventilation grate opening, which sent him into an even more ferocious bout of profanity. He threw open the door to the bathroom and froze. Man, I was gonna miss the hand of glory when it finally burned down to nothing. I carefully pushed him out of my way and stepped around his considerable frame. Ben might fall for my ruse, but I knew that whenever Millie came back for her things, I'd be suspect number one. What's more, she no longer had any use for Ben's body now that she had one of her own. And when she discovered that I'd stolen her shit, she'd get so angry she'd probably eat him just out of spite. I took the pen and wrote on the stationery. Needed some of this. Be back for you soon. I stuffed the note plus half of his cash in his shirt pocket. Hopefully that would freak Ben out enough to make him hole up at his boyfriend's place for a while. I stepped out of his apartment and blew out the hand of glory. Ben resumed his tirade, followed by silence. Followed by hysterical what-the-fucks. The sound of a mission accomplished. On my way to the jewelry store, I picked up a burner at a bodega, and while I was there, wrote a quick note with the new mobile number on the stationery. I've got your bag of marbles. Call me. I was impressed. The pin was one of those fancier Mont Blancs, probably worth 100000 or so, assuming it didn't turn into a bick at the next full moon. I figured that if the stationery and the pin were locked up in the television safe, they might have some kind of power. I hoped it would give me some credibility. I arrived at the jewelry store ten minutes before close and didn't even bother trying to look like I was interested in buying anything. Instead, I sized up the employees, identified the manager, and handed her the note. Get this to the owner. They'll want to see it ASAP. Then I left, parking myself in a booth at a trendy bar down the street that's always packed. I stuck out like a sore thumb among the hipsters, but I didn't want to be alone. I had no idea what I was dealing with here. And besides, they make a great Cosmo. If you're too hard to drink a Cosmo, you're only hurting yourself, buddy. I was working on my third Cosmo when the burner buzzed. I cupped my hand to my ear so I could hear over the din. The voice was so metallic and distorted couldn't tell anything about the person at the other end. But the message was clear. 
Greyhound station on 28. The bathroom, 15 minutes. I paid for my drinks with Ben's money, tossed the phone in the trash can, and did some breathing exercises to calm my nerves on the way to the meeting. It didn't work. I was vibrating like a high-tension cable when I arrived at the nearly deserted bus station. A young couple sat in the corner, bodies intertwined as they slept against each other. The human string bean was nodding off by the vending machines. An elderly woman was buying a ticket at the automated kiosk, her cane on a nearby chair. I gave the elderly woman a wide berth as I made my way across the station, stopping before the bathroom door. I took a couple more deep breaths, which still did nothing for me, and I stepped inside. There was an old ceramic toilet that was yellowing in spots, a metal trash can full of used paper towels, and a standard sink. Paper towel dispenser on the right, metal mirror affixed to the wall. Written in soap on the mirror, close the door. I closed the door. When I turned back around to face the mirror, the message had changed. Pour them in the sink. My eyes dropped to stare at the drain. I slipped the ring on my finger. The drain was a gullet, dark and starving. The sink was its mouth, open wide and quivering with anticipation. I hurriedly took the ring off, backed up until my butt hit the door and grabbed the purple sack of marbles. My price is you help me get rid of whatever I loosed from this bag. It's got a body now. I'm pretty sure neither of us wanted roaming free. The lights flickered, the soap scum red. Get in the sink. What? Are you fucking crazy? Hello? Are you okay in there, young man? Sorry, I'll keep it down, on the phone. I will not harm you. The mirror read. Fuck that. Come up with something else. And then the centipede started crawling in from under the door. She will eat you. The mirror read. I stood up on the toilet, and within seconds the floor was a living carpet crawling up the sides of the bowl. Frantic, I slipped the ring back on, hoping it was all an illusion. But what I saw on the floor was far worse than thousands of hungry centipedes. My mind broke. I jumped into the sink and it devoured me greedily. I woke up on a concrete floor, covered in stinking reddish slime. My skin burned and had an ugly rash covering most of my body. My tool bag, Ben's duffel and a sack of marbles lay on the floor beside me, also covered in goo. The room was lit by a single naked bulb hanging from a ceiling so far above me, the wire faded into darkness. Aside from an unpainted wooden door on one wall, the room was featureless and unfurnished. I grabbed my phone to see the day and time, but it wouldn't turn on. I'm awake! The purple bag shivered and turned over on its side. A single marble rolled out. Is that some kind of offering? Silence. Not knowing what else to do, I picked up the marble in my gloved hand. The light was dim, but I could make out two heads in this one, and I recognized them. 
Heckle and Jekyll. Two yellow-billed magpies from the cartoons of the 50s and 60s. This was the first time I touched one of these marbles for any length of time. With Millie's, I always aimed to destroy or dispose of it as quickly as possible, and I realized it wasn't actually made of glass. There was some give to it. I thought about looking at it while wearing the ring, but was too afraid of what I'd see. The door then flung itself open, blinding me as bright sunlight flooded the room. I can take a hint. I put the marble in Ben's duffel and exited the room, leaving the rest of the Crown Royal bag behind. The door closed behind me, and I wasn't surprised to see a black concrete wall when I turned around. I was in an alley just off Juniper Street, three blocks from my apartment. With my phone dead, I couldn't call Ben's friend to get more info on the hooded guy unless I wanted to use a payphone, and the thought of stepping into the confined space of a phone booth made me queasy. I was all out of moves, and since I knew Millie could find me no matter where I tried to hide, I figured I may as well meet her in some clean, non-stinking clothes on my own turf. I got some strange looks from the other residents of my building, and who could blame them? I looked and smelled like I'd been dipped in rancid strawberry syrup. After locking the door behind me, I threw my lucky jersey and the rest of my clothes in a sink to soak in detergent. I showered, and after I put on some fresh clothes, I grabbed a beer from the fridge, cracked it open, and waited for Millie on the couch. While I waited, I turned on the TV. Big news day. That morning, farmers in western Oklahoma woke up to a cloud of locusts that devoured just about every plant within several dozen square miles. Etymologists were mystified because the North American locusts had been extinct for more than a century. But that wasn't all. Several dozen people in Kansas had been hospitalized for a mysterious illness that resembled smallpox, and the West Virginia's 17-year cicadas had emerged from the ground nine years early. They were so loud, some residents sought medical attention. Their ears were bleeding. I turned the TV off and picked up Heckle and Jekyll. They looked like they were smiling now. I put the marble on the end table, and despite my feeble efforts to stay awake, I could no longer keep my eyes open. As the afterimage of their grins faded from my retinas, I fell asleep on the couch. It was the smell that woke me. Rancid meat and rotting vegetables. I opened my eyes to see Millie standing in my kitchen, shaking her head at me disapprovingly through the doorway. She took a couple of bites from the apple in her hand and tossed the rest on the floor. I had high hopes for us, locksmith. Her body dissolved into a mountain of tiny, wriggling creatures. I scampered over the back of the couch toward the sliding glass door that opened onto my balcony. My plan was to climb to the roof, and if I fell to my death, I figured that would be a whole lot better than being eaten alive. But before I got halfway across the room, the sliding door exploded inward into tiny shards of glass. I instinctively covered my face and felt a few pieces lodge themselves in my arms. I felt the blackbird's talons on my shoulder before I felt its considerable weight. It wasn't quite a raven, a crow, or a magpie, but it was definitely some kind of corvid. 
The thing was the size of an eagle. The big one. The centipedes and insects had formed a thick mat that was advancing quickly towards me and the bird. God damn it, do something! And to my shock, it responded. If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. What? Its beak flashed. My eye sockets filled with molten pain, and the world went dark. I heard the birds swallow my eyes in one giant gulp. I collapsed to the floor, and its weight lifted off from my shoulder. The room exploded into beating wings, ear-piercing caws, crunching, and the high-pitched screaming of a million tiny voices. All the while, I writhed around on the floor, pressing my hands into my ruined face, listening to the birds feast on the bugs until I lost consciousness from the pain. I awoke when I felt something being pushed into one of my empty sockets, the left one. I tried to wriggle free and bat it away, but was held fast by sharp talons that pierced the skin of my arms and neck if I moved too much. Once the marble popped into place, I could see. Even with just one working eye, I could see so much more than before. I crawled back to the couch and took stock of my situation. Rivers of dried blood ran down my cheeks like tears. The apartment was a mess of black feathers, bird droppings, and insect parts. But nothing moved, and that gave me comfort. The corvid had hopped onto the table opposite me, and once I'd calmed down enough to listen, the bird began to teach. I learned the true nature of the marbles and the faces from which they'd been torn, how the old gods entered our souls through our eyes, the deep power of the orb that now rolled around in my left eye socket how to read the language Millie had spoken as a child many thousands of years ago. The Corvid, too, has had many names. Some are playful. Others are... terrifying. I do think it is far more suited to my nature than Millie was. But, to be honest, I don't think I have much of my own nature left. I do not belong to me anymore. And I fear I will do terrible things. Instincts. They can be the difference between life and death. Sometimes you just know you shouldn't go into that haunted carnival or become a counselor at the cursed summer camp. So you decide to stay home and have a nice cup of tea, and everything's fine. But in this tale, shared with us by author Manon Lysette, we meet a woman who always follows her instincts until the time she decided not to. 
Performing this tale is Nicole Goodnight. So let's go on a journey through one woman's life, discover all the decisions she's made, good and bad, as we hear about five times I trusted my guts and the one time I didn't. We all have those moments in our life when we listen to that little twinge of fear at the pit of our stomachs keeping us from doing something stupid. We might never find out what could have happened if we didn't heed to the warning, but sometimes, looking back through the lens of hindsight, it's possible to see, even years later, that our guts were so, so, so right. Growing up, I experienced a few instances where I listened to that voice, and it's only now as an adult that I realized the kind of trouble I could have been in if I hadn't. Let me tell you about the five most important times I trusted my guts and what happened the one time I didn't. The first time, I was around six years old and living in Germany in a trio of apartment complexes reserved for Canadian Army families. It was a safe community where parents didn't feel the need to helicopter over their kids 24-7. It was Halloween, but since Germans don't really celebrate Halloween, I guess the social committee figured trick-or-treating would be a bust. Instead, they set up three events in the basements of the apartment complexes. An adult party, a kids party, and an all-ages horror labyrinth. That evening, I went to the basement with my older sister and my classmate, Rachel. As we were waiting in line for the maze, my sister gravitated towards her friends and we split up. I can still recall crawling through pitch black corridors and feeling tentacles scraping along the top of my head. I realize now that they were probably just cardboard boxes and cut up garbage bags. I also remember how everyone wore glow sticks and me not being able to light mine. What I remember most were the bowls. Once in a while, we were stopped at a table and told to stick our hands into them and try to figure out what we were touching. I can still distinctly remember some of those sensations and feeling of the frilled cuffs of my clown costume sleeves becoming damp as I fingered through what felt like guts and eyeballs and brains. Know-it-all Rachel kept ruining the fun by quickly saying, This is spaghetti. Those were peeled grapes. And over there were beans and sauce. What a killjoy. As we were nearing the end of the maze, I heard someone shouting that a kid had thrown up. And the adult at the final bowl station ran off with a flashlight. Rachel was already dismissing the maggots as cooked rice when I spotted a door on the far wall. A door I was pretty sure shouldn't have been there, and one that I could only make out from the lines of purple light shining from the other side. See, I'd been in that basement for birthday parties before, and I knew there were only two doors, the one to the stairwell and a supply closet on the wall next to it. Well, I can't say for sure it wasn't the supply closet door because I'd gotten turned around quite a bit in the maze. Something inside of me warned me that that door wasn't normal. It slowly began to creak open, making my guts tangle up like headphones in a backpack. I could have watched and waited for what was likely nothing more than a final jump scare, but instead, I ran. 
I circled around the room until I found the light of the stairwell and sat on the bottom step as I waited for Rachel to find me. There were maybe three groups of kids that came through until I finally saw my sister and kind of forgot about Rachel. We headed to the kids' party in the other building, and that was that. The next day, Rachel wasn't in class. Nor the next day. Or the next day after that. Eventually, we were told her parents had been stationed back in Canada unexpectedly. No one questioned it. I also didn't think to question why. From time to time, I, I still saw her parents in town, seemingly worn out and morose while showing her photos to anyone who would look. The next one is, well, it's kind of a two-parter. It happened on different days, maybe three weeks apart. I can't help but to think the events are connected, but I could be wrong. It was summer, and we were living in Nova Scotia. My sister, two of our friends, and I were playing explorers in the forest near our house. It was pretty much what you'd expect. Trampolining on hollow logs, splashing around in bogs, you know, kid stuff. We wandered a bit further than normal and came across a clearing we'd never seen before. Now, I wouldn't say the clearing was new. It was overgrown like it had always been there, but there were a few things that hinted at someone having been there recently. For instance, there were a few patches of flattened brush, a forgotten coat, the remnants of a fire pit with charcoal sticking out of it. Oh, oh, and, and did I mention a bunch of skulls? Because yeah, yeah, there were a bunch of skulls. I think all our guts were saying the same thing, but we didn't leave so fast as to not be able to get a good look at the skulls. We'd seen the Lion King not long before our excursion, and we were kind of in that state of half-fear, half-adventure-seeking, comparing this to the scene in the elephant graveyard. I remember the skulls were very clean, with no meat or hair clinging to them. I remember only one of them had the rest of its skeleton nearby, but not attached. The skulls were just kind of on the ground, in no particular pattern. Back then, and, and still now, I attributed the big, wide, chiclet-like teeth to those of an herbivore, and I remember thinking they looked like cow bones. Don't know how the hell I would have known what cow bones looked like, but that was my theory. <laughs> we went home and told our parents, leaving out the part about the fire pit, not out of malice, but because we were focused on the skulls. Mom said it was probably dead livestock from a nearby farm, which was kind of an unsatisfying answer, given that there weren't any farms in the suburbs. We were told to stay away from the skulls in case of disease, but that was about it. We didn't go back into the woods until a few weeks later, which leads me to the second part of the story. We were back to exploring the woods, but this time there was an unspoken tension like, we all knew we wanted to go look at the skulls, but also knew we'd get in trouble if we did. We kind of gravitated towards the clearing, but before we could even get there, my sister spotted a plastic shopping bag tucked between the roots of a tree. My immediate thought was, we found treasure. So there we were, four kids ranging from ages eight to 10 in the middle of the woods, digging out a plastic bag hidden, albeit poorly, in a tree. My sister got it loose, set it down, and knives. Not one, not two, not three, but a ton of knives. An entire shopping bag full of used knives. There were paring knives, cleavers, steak knives, you name it, and it was there. We all kind of looked at each other, wondering what we should do. And yes, I realize how unbelievable this sounds, but I swear to you, this all actually happened. 
Since my friend's dad was a cop, we took the knives with us thinking we were helping solve a murder or something. Surprisingly, our parents didn't make a big deal out of it. Like, I, I genuinely don't know if they didn't think it was a big deal or if they didn't want us to see them freaking out. I, I kind of want to ask my mom next time I see her. Sure, the early 90s were a different time, and it's entirely possible they were just like, eh, whatever, as long as my kids don't have tetanus from this, but who knows? For this next one, I was still in Nova Scotia, and winter was in full swing. My house was about a 20-minute walk from school. It was far enough that I couldn't go home during lunch, but close enough that the city didn't pay for school buses for my neighborhood. We kind of had a carpool thing going on, but I think that was reserved for bad weather. I always looked forward to the carpool, not only because it meant my lazy ass didn't have to walk, but also because the family who usually drove us had one of those, uh, crap, I, I have no idea what the name of this car is, but it had this little cabin in the back with seats facing inward and facing each other. I don't think they make that car anymore. I, I haven't seen that model since. It was that kind of puke green with race car-like stripes along the side, but instead of paint, it was wood paneling. Sorry, I digress. <laughs> so that day wasn't a carpool day. I was walking home and a little grumpy because, as I said before, I was lazy. As I was walking, a car pulled up to me and I saw the man inside roll down the passenger window. I still remember what he said word for word. Your mom sent me to get you. Hop in. I saw him reaching for the door handle. I glanced at the back of the car, but I didn't see those familiar inward-facing seats. This was before those Stranger Danger commercials, but thankfully, you don't need to watch someone sing about creeps to recognize one when you see one. Something about his smile and his overly friendly tone stuck out to me. I looked around, hoping to see other students. Strength in numbers, you know? but I was the only one who took that path home from my school. I mumbled that I lived just a block away, and as the door began to open, I started walking as fast as I could. The creepiest thing is that I could hear the car slowly inching forward behind me, the icy road crackling under its tires. He was following me. Freaking following me to see if I was lying. I'm sure of it. I would have run home if it wasn't still so far, but... Thankfully, there was this little bike path that cut through to another street. As soon as I reached that path, I booked it across, never looking back. From there, it took longer to get home, but I cut through some backyards, something my parents told me never to do, just so I could stay out of line of sight from that guy in the car. I made it home without seeing him again. My last story where I did follow my guts takes place near a friend's house. We had a sleepover, which resulted in my first experience drinking orange juice with pulp. I never knew fruit juice could betray me like that orange juice betrayed me that day. Gross. Anyways, we watched young Hercules and then went out to explore the forest behind her house. I would never consider myself an outdoorsy person. I'm literally the opposite of that, but for some reason, the few times I explored woods, weird stuff happened. Eh, what can I say? We came to this old-looking tree house my friend had told me about. The ladder was just boards nailed to the tree leading up to the structure made of planks and plywood. My friend really wanted us to go up and have a picnic, but one, we didn't know who the treehouse belonged to. Two, 
Something about it just screamed super freaking dangerous. And three, I had a bit of a phobia preventing me from going up there. What's that? Fear of heights? Nope. I was afraid of splinters. Climbing was never a problem. Wood was. My friend tried to peer pressure me, but I convinced her to go home by reminding her Xena was about to start. We left, and that was that. A week later, I heard some kid had climbed into the treehouse that very same day, and the floor collapsed. The treehouse wasn't too high up, and he could have survived the fall, but unfortunately, he landed on a nail on a plank pinned under the rubble and couldn't get up. He was dead by the time they found him a few days later. I think it's fair to say I wasn't a stupid kid, and while a lot of weird things happened to and around me, I was fairly lucky. If my timing was different and I hadn't trusted my guts, I could have wound up dead, but like I said at the start, despite all the times I trusted my guts, there was one time I didn't. And it's time for me to share what happened that night. It was another sleepover, this one at my cousin's new house. They'd been telling us for weeks how their basement was haunted, and we were finally getting to see it. The layout was really weird. You'd go down the stairs and into a large room stuffed to the brim with junk, then through a door into a second smaller room with more junk and the washer and dryer, and then there was a tiny doorway, more like a window, midway up the wall leading to a lightless room full of miscellaneous items. My aunt gave us a stern warning not to go into that third room. A warning which my cousins repeated to us a few times throughout the night. This was your quintessential horror movie basement. I'm talking dust, a random rocking chair, creepy dolls, you name it, and it had it. I believe the home belonged to an old woman who passed away and my aunt and uncle had got it for dirt cheap. All the old junk included, and they hadn't sorted through all of it yet. There was an atmosphere of creepiness lingering in the air. I can't really describe it, but it was like this electric sensation. You know when someone's standing behind you, it's like you know they're there even though they're dead quiet? The first room felt that way. The second room was a bit worse, and the closer I'd get to the third, the worse it got. Like I was walking towards a, a staticky television back when the screens used to hold static. As we were sitting in the first of the three rooms, my cousin spotted a letter on the rocking chair. Even as a kid, I caught on to the conspiratorial looks between my cousins as they handed the letter to my sister and me. The paper was old parchment, or made to look like it, had this perfume scent to it, and was written in black cursive. I could tell it was made to look old, but I wasn't fooled. It was dated about 300 years ago and was a love letter from some chick to her soldier husband. I only remember the gist of it, but basically he'd gone off to war and she found out he was dead. Don't ask me why she was writing to him if she thought he was dead. So she was going to throw herself off the train tracks that night and kill herself over the grief. One of my cousins explained that the third room connected to a tunnel that connected to train tracks not far from their house, and that she slipped out in the middle of the night and had done as she said in her letter. Again, I, I didn't really believe any of this, but the story still swam in my head as we started playing Ouija, a few physical illusion games, and, and finally, truth or dare. It was all innocent at first, who liked which member of the Backstreet Boys, get locked in the second room for two minutes, do a headstand, etc., Finally, the choice came to me, and, and not wanting to admit my crush on Nick Carter despite owning a hoodie with his face on it, I picked Dare. My cousin dared me to go into the third room. I only had to stay there for one second. 
just long enough to say that I'd done it, but my whole body had to pass the threshold. Having no other choice, I agreed and slowly began to walk over to that strange above-ground door, silently hoping they'd either change their minds or my aunt would come down and save me. Neither of those things happened. My guts were going haywire, I could feel the air getting denser and denser. My cousins and sister were standing by the doorway between the first and second rooms, watching me as I tentatively reached for the frame of the door window thing. I heard a few hushed do-its and go-ons, but the encouragement didn't help ease my mind. I stood there for at least a minute, trying to garner the courage to pull myself into what I assumed was some sort of crawl space. Finally, I did. It was tight and it was dark, and even with my legs still hanging over the edge, I felt trapped. You have to go all the way in, shouted my cousin. I swallowed hard and shimmied myself forward, and then, just as I was trying to turn back around to leave, I heard a click. They turned off the light to the second room, and I could hear them giggle as they shut the door, plunging me into absolute darkness. In a panic, I snapped myself around and tried to find an edge to the door so I could climb out, but for some reason, I still can't explain, all my limbs could reach were boxes, objects, and walls. It made no sense. This was a small area packed with things. It, it shouldn't have been hard to find the doorway, because there shouldn't have been anywhere to move away from it. And yet, there I was, crawling around like I was in some sort of giant tunnel system. And then I wondered if there was any truth to my cousin's story about the house being connected to the train tunnels. What if I wasn't even in the house anymore? I could hear my cousins or sister laughing. I couldn't find the door. What if I was going to wind up falling on the train tracks and getting sliced in half? What followed was the single most horrific moment in my entire life. As I was crawling, completely alone in the dark, I felt something grab my leg. I'm not too proud to admit it, I started screaming and crying for help. The little crawl space began to shake violently, and I could hear the sound of a train approaching. I was convinced the ghost of that woman had grabbed me and was dragging me over the tracks to kill me. I could feel a pull and the grip remained firm as I kicked and screamed. My heart was racing, my body was shaking from the outside in and inside out, and sweat was pouring out of me. I was convinced I was about to die. And then I saw a light at the end of the tunnel. Or should I say, a light in the second room of the basement. My shaking stopped, the grip loosened and let go and I felt another grip grab hold of me. My aunt latched onto my arm and pulled me out of the third room crawl space. I was covered in dust and my clothes had gotten ripped a little. I got in trouble for breaking the rules, but honestly, the punishment came as a huge relief. I was to never set foot in the basement again, a rule I was all too happy to oblige. I don't know what would have happened if my aunt hadn't rescued me when she did. But what I do know is that night was an important reminder to always, always trust my guts. If you take anything away from this, it's that you should trust yours as well.
In our final tale, we welcome a dear friend home. She can be hot or cold. She can scorch your heart and chill your bones. And like the season that serves as her namesake, she's back. In this brand new, exclusive, standalone tale shared with us by author Marcus Demanda, we join an unconventional yet familiar pair of siblings in a dance-off for the ages. I join Jessica McAvoy, Jeff Clement, Sarah Thomas, Nicole Goodnight, Atticus Jackson, Mike Delgadio, Ellie Hirschman, Graham Rowett, Armin Taylor, Dan Zapula, and Kyle Akers in performing this tale. So check your necks and leave your inhibitions at the door. It's summer in the city, and it's amateur night. I pulled back from him, drawing in breath, licking my lips. I smiled at him, patted his cheek, but didn't speak to him. There was no point. His eyes had rolled back in his head. His hand went to the side of his neck. Quickly, I got out of the car, crossed around to his side and opened the door. He spilled out of it, first onto his back, then rolling over to his front. He tried to push himself up and failed. He lay flat, an expanding pond of blood spreading out from under his face, the gash from behind his ear to the underside of his Adam's apple pulsing the final rhythms of his heart. He huffed in roadside gravel and coughed it out in a plume of dusty pink spray. No need to draw it out. I knelt into the center of his back and yanked his head up by the hair, splitting his throat, snapping his spine. More out of routine than necessity, I fished his wallet out of an inside coat pocket and looted it, taking not only his cash, but every form of ID he had on him which I'd dispose of when I was far from here. Curious. Among the small collection of charge cards and permits and such, I also found a business card for the man's church. Apparently, the solicitous middle-aged pervert was a deacon at Evangel Baptist. Well, hallelujah. I checked the inside of the car and was rather self-satisfied to find it clean. I was getting better at this. Careful not to get any blood on my boots, I dragged him to the guardrail and shoved him under it. When I was close enough to just tow him over the side, I let him go, listened to him drop. The creek bed 30 feet below wasn't deep enough to conceal him even if I'd weighted him down. Nor was the current powerful enough to carry him downstream by a town or two while I drove safely away. It was, however, sufficiently strong to wash away any evidence of me. I got back in the car and checked myself in the rear view. And there I was in the reflection, 
winking a sly blue eye at myself. No invisible phantom was I, not so soon after a kill, not while my flesh remained suffused by the blood of the living. The car was a 1964 Mustang convertible, a sleek electric blue that complemented my unbound shock of fiery red hair rather well. I checked my watch. It was only seven, and the appointed rendezvous was only 20 miles away. I floored it anyway. Not that life was short, you understand. Not for me. I just like to drive fast. And the Mustang was pretty badass. Five miles down the road, I remembered the headlights. At night, the highways of southwestern Pennsylvania are a shadowy nothing, spiderwebbing through the forests and mountains like the blackened veins of a corpse. In places, the mountains are literally cut in two by the road. Driving through them, the earth rises up on either side in twin walls of stony gray. In 1968, radio reception was simply not to be had in that silent Appalachian hell, apart from the occasional broken burst of... Oh God, honey Jesus, we ask might down the sinful non-believer, and let us drive out the fornicator, for the Lord's true disciples will not suffer that the face of Sodom and Gomorrah be visited upon us. I sniffed in amusement, switched off the radio. Just ahead, coming out of another twin split of mountainside, I could see the radio tower. A red light atop silhouetted steel scaffolding blinking on and off in the black. Reception would be better now, should my soul feel in need of saving. No time. Another seven miles south and I'd be there. The first hints I had of the town of West Chapel were a Sunoco gas station and a new McDonald's, which were popping up everywhere along the highways these days. Under the golden arches had been propped up a sign. New, the Big Mac. A meal disguised as a sandwich. I sighed, remembering food. But laying off the gas and settling into cruising speed down South Haven Way, that distraction was short-lived. Only a bit farther down the road was the glowing alabaster steeple of a church. One by the name of Evangel Baptist. Well, I thought, turning off onto the first available side street. Shit. The people were out, and not just around the grounds of the church. Well beyond that, when I got back on the main road half a mile later, I came upon them again. They were walking in pairs and small clusters all over the place. That they were churchgoers was obvious with their pressed white shirts, black slacks, and their ridiculously modest ankle-length dresses. The reek of ultra-thin, gold-trimmed Bible paper made my nostrils twitch. 
and they were headed in the same direction I was, to the state line between Pennsylvania and West Virginia, where, it was to be hoped, my future little sister would be waiting to sell her soul. The bar was just on the other side of the state line, less than a hundred yards beyond the street marker. There, like a beacon of sin shining down over the log cabin structure and its gravel parking lot, was a life-sized neon outline of a woman with long legs and cut-off jean shorts. She was bent over double, holding her ankles. The yellow blinking letters above her upturned ass read, The Full Moon Corral. Among perhaps a dozen other vehicles in the parking lot, I took note of three West Virginia police cruisers. Two, there was a cheap, dirty white Pinto nearer to the road, with the driver still behind the wheel. Oh, there you are. She stepped out as I parked far enough away to watch and still be inconspicuous. She had striking, natural platinum hair, hard eyes of cobalt blue dulled recently to a shell-shocked gray, but the blood in her veins was very much alive. It was vibrant, desperate, scared. I knew that she was 24 years old, same age I had been when I had stopped aging, but she didn't look a heartbeat older than 21. Her name was Cheryl Ann Carmichael. From 30 feet away, I tracked her unsteady steps, her nervously flitting eyes. I could see the rim of a bandage at the end of one sleeve of her jacket, an unseasonably light windbreaker featuring the Baltimore Colts logo on the back. She'd been a professional cheerleader less than a year ago. Now, she was nothing. No one. And she was lost. It wasn't that she didn't know where she was. I had a feeling she understood that only too well. She was lost in spirit. Directionless. Wayward. I could smell the defeat in her soul like a gas fire in a garbage dump. She had potential. And just like that, they converged on her from three points. As though on cue, the front door of the bar swung outward, and from it there emerged two heavies in white t-shirts that read only staff. Ahead of her, the doors of police cars swung open. And, from not far behind her, two churchgoers, a young woman and an older man. They hustled after her, Bibles in hand, eager to catch up. Vultures all, and of the very worst sort. Human vultures. Oh, but I knew the species well. They surrounded her at once. Bar staff, cops, and rollers most holy, talking over each other. Do not go with them, child. Flee this den of wickedness. 
Come with us and embrace the Lord Jesus. This way, young lady. Come on. It'll be fine. Oh, my. Well, ain't you a cute, sir? Miss, I'm afraid if you're not paying customers, you'll have to keep your activities to the other side of the property line. The bouncer had her by the wrist, effectively covering the bandage, while the young woman had her by the other wrist and was pulling on it. Sister, no. Please. Be led not into temptation, for the Lord's... Cheryl yanked her unbandaged hand free, her face blotchy red, her cheeks dripping tears. Let me go, you... you freak! I clicked my zippo, lit a lucky strike, drew in smoke, shook my head. The police, palms out, slowly urged back the churchgoers, trying to calm them. Easy, Reverend. Easy, Joletta. Whore! Whore of Babylon! Hell-bound harlot! For it shall not only be the eyes of men upon you, but also the eyes of God himself. And his judgment shall follow swiftly on the heels of his righteous wrath. Huh. It was the same guy I'd heard on the radio. The way he said the word, God, drawing it out, was distinct. Radio show must have been a recording then. His eyes found me next as he was urged, walking backward, to the thin grass median just outside of the parking lot. There, no fewer than ten other zealots had gathered, many of them bearing signs, shouting maledictions. He held his Bible aloft. I returned the salute with an exhalation of smoke and my middle finger. Joletta literally gasped at this. I noted a family resemblance, a similar scent, easy to discern from less than 20 feet away. I closed my eyes, focused my thoughts. Where are you? This might get complicated. Distantly but clear came the response. I'm on my way. Is she worth it? Will she make them happy? I thought of the way she had wrenched herself free. The defiance under all of those tears. The piss and vinegar under the wreck of her spirit. How helpless she was. What, I wondered, would she give for a taste of true power? I answered him. Maybe. Typically, we hunted alone. It didn't take long. After establishing a few safe houses along the East Coast and recruiting the day guardians, for us to establish the pattern, strike and move, strike and move, and regroup at one sanctuary or another every third Sunday before midnight. The first of these, and our favorite was an old lighthouse at Cape Matador, South Carolina. But by now we had secondary haunts as far north as New Jersey, and we hoped to expand our killing field farther west, near the Hemlock family in Kentucky. Our family, to this point, 
was still only us. Twice we had presented candidates to the cabal for consideration, and twice we had been denied. How they had screamed at the end, the unworthies we had brought, newly transformed, only to find themselves burned from the inside out by their own kind, forced to swallow the molten vomit of hellhounds from Grandfather's personal kennel. We needed someone that no one could deny. Someone who would be grateful, loyal, obedient. In short, someone not like me. After that, perhaps we would have more freedom to choose as we would. But to have found her here, only last night half dead by her own hand in a shitty apartment deep in the land of faith healers and snake charmers had been unexpected, to say the least. I looked up. Cheryl had gone inside. Two of the six officers, apparently, had followed her. Three more were at the property line, keeping the evangel apostolate at bay. And one, persuaded by reasons I could not fathom, allowed the reverend, all by himself, to pass back onto the parking lot, to come to me. Other cars were pulling in. Customers. Mostly Pennsylvania plates. Mostly men. Not everyone in West Chapel, it seemed, belonged to Evangel Baptist. The Reverend came closer, Bible in hand. Pardon me, miss. Pastor Mordecai Dorsey, might I have a word? You can have two. I put out the cigarette, sensing the distance between us shrink without looking at him. Fuck off. <laughs> he kept coming. He walked right up to the car, close enough for me to feel the cross on his lapel like an actual headache. I'm afraid you don't know what you're getting into, young lady. And you're so angry, so alone. What's your name, honey? I took the keys out of the ignition, closed my eyes again. Oh, but how I wanted to kill him right now. Has no one ever shared with you the good news of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? I faced him, forcing calm upon my features even as I felt my eyes begin to water with pain. I can see your suffering. Do you need shelter, miss? Friendship? Love? There is fellowship at my church, I can take you there, or at least show you the way. Pathetic. His eyes, however, seemed to take in my wheels for the first time. I did not think his very own deacon, the would-be fornicator Rusty Simpson, now nothing more than food for crawfish, would be the owner of a blue 64 Mustang. Yet there was no doubting the recognition in his eyes. And with it, the first hint of suspicion. He leaned closer. The pain became a sizzling burn. T 
tears fell. His right hand now rested on the driver's side door. Do not go inside that place, girl. Then, a final warning or threat. Here there be monsters. Really? And without thinking, I reached out and put my hand over his, taking his middle finger in a fist and pushing it over the back of his hand. It crackled like a dry twig. He stepped back, dropping the Bible. He howled, looking down over himself with outrage and shock. (laughs) Meanwhile, I opened the door into his stomach, bowling him over, and stepped out, kicking his precious scripture away from me like a live snake. They're everywhere, Padre. Should have fucked off when I told you to. All through the parking lot, cheers and guffaws from the customers who had not yet gone inside. A quick glance over my shoulder. Two of the cops were laughing. The small band of zealots, however, was growing, and they were none too pleased. Whatever. Without looking back, ignoring the wolf whistles and cat calls of other men emerging from their cars... I made a straight line for the front steps of the Full Moon Corral. Just inside the doors, I found myself immediately engulfed by enough red and blue lights to have thought I was about to be arrested by every state cop in West Virginia. Then they went yellow and green, then purple and pink all turning and swirling and blinking on and off, and all in time to the music from the jukebox. Rolling stones, I thought, but I couldn't be sure. Might have been something new. It was hard to keep track of the ways of people, much as I knew I was supposed to. On stage, from inside a steel cage that was chain-linked to rafters in the ceiling, Three young women in brightly colored halter tops and short shorts alternately bounced and swayed to the rhythm of the music. Two of them, the ones on either side, moved with practiced ease, blowing kisses and jiggling their tits at the men who hooted at them from their small wooden tables out on the floor. The girl in the middle, a demure young brunette, clumsily did her best to imitate them, perpetually caught between abashed smiles and involuntary laughter, as though she was surprised at her own behavior. A banner over the front of the stage read, Full Moon Night is Amateur Night, same as the flyer I'd seen not long ago on the bathroom sink of one Cheryl Ann Carmichael. Nearly every eye was on the stage, especially when the non-amateurs peeled off their halter tops. Not even the scantily clad waitresses running frothy pitchers of beer out to the tables got much attention after that. As for me, in my long jacket of red leather and denim bell-bottoms, I might have been invisible, although I had a passing thought the tie-dye shirt underneath the jacket would have at least matched the lighting in this place. 
Cheryl was at the bar, Windbreaker draped over a bar stool. In front of her, there was a Coca-Cola with a bendy straw instead of a beer, and a portly young man with sideburns and a collared shirt who held both of her hands, palms up. I could smell the blood from her wrist from here. It was scabbed over, covered by the bandage, yet the scent remained strong. A living thing under the omnipresent stench of spent cigarettes. And I could hear her, although I doubt that anyone else other than the bartender could under the music, which had moved on to something wholly unknown to me, thumpy and psychedelic. I don't know, Marty. I've never done anything like this before. Are you sure it's even legal? It's fine. He purred at her with a slow smile, his sideburns and mustache twitching. He let her hands go, guided her face to turn back to the stage. There, the veterans of the Full Moon Corral had gone starkers and, still swaying to the music, were gently urging the new girl out of her clothes as well. It's legal. Sit tight for a minute, okay? Enjoy the show. All in good fun. The boys are harmless. You'll see. As far as I knew, it wasn't legal. Not back then. Not in 1968. There was some topless go-go dancing out west near the underground hotel. Some of it even in cages like the one on the stage now. But I didn't know of any bar, or dive like this one, where women got bare-assed in front of customers. He left her there, stirring her soda with the straw, stealing guilty glances up to the stage, where the blushing young brunette allowed the other dancers to ease her first out of her shirt and then her bra. Briefly, I tuned in to other conversations, forcing the music to the back of my brain peeling it back in layers until I could focus on what was being said around me, eavesdropping first on one table, where two of the cops from outside had settled in for a drink. I don't know if I like this, man. The Reverend means trouble this time. We should be out there. And then the next. Over here, miss. Another. And one for my friend. And one of the bouncers to his fellow both of whom seemed to be guarding a back door opposite the restrooms. Oh, she's cute enough, yeah, but we only hire local. When she's off stage, she's done. Can't be helped. It'll be straight through the doggy door for her, same as the last one. And then a fourth. Marty, the bartender, had seated himself opposite a rather lean, wiry specimen of a man in a red and blue flannel shirt that was easily three sizes too big for him. His features were gaunt, fully bearded, his eyes a brown so light they were practically orange. He set down his beer and wiped dribbling froth from his lips with the back of a palm that was just a bit too large. Easy, Chief. No, we've been cooped up in here all day. It's time. I'm ready. We won't wait all night. My sense of smell then focused on that one. He wore his hair long, 
which was becoming more and more typical of young men at the time. Only, he wasn't young. He was 40 at least, and quite possibly as old as 50. The fact that I couldn't pin down his age by scent was unsettling in itself, but that wasn't all. There was something unusual, something decidedly not right about him. His hand, splayed out on the table now, fingers scratching over wood, seemed to pulse. The little hairs on the back of it curled, as though with expectation or impatience. A low rumble, which would have been impossible for any but me to hear, began to flutter deep from within his vocal cords. A steadily building growl, willfully caged, ready to be born. He wasn't human, and now he was looking at me, staring at me with understanding. He knew I wasn't human either. Not human, and also not whatever the fuck he was. From across the floor, with a dozen or more whistling and cackling men, and a few bustling waitresses in tight shirts between us, we regarded each other and knew. We were different, not only from the other patrons, but from each other. Where the hell are you? The answer came with the opening of the front door. And there he was, pocketing his sunglasses as he strode inside, untucking his oh-so-ordinary black shirt from his boring tan khakis, as though just coming in from a long day at the office. But his voice, still answering only in my head, was far from relaxed. Right here, and just in time, by the smell of it. The thing seated in front of the barkeep took another swig of his beer, his breath gurgling in his throat as he put the glass back down. What the fuck is that? If you know something, now's the time. I don't know, but I have a guess, and it's likely the same as yours. Looks like you've walked into more than you've bargained for here, little sister. I sat at the unattended bar, looking away from him, away from the thing near the stage, and nodded acknowledgement to Cheryl, who was now right next to me. What else is new? Before he could answer, Cheryl spoke to me directly. You here to dance tonight? I cocked an eyebrow at her, swiveled in my chair to regard the stage. The blushing brunette had given up the last of her clothes. She laughed up at the ceiling lights, made a valiant effort to keep dancing. She'd put on her brave face, but it couldn't really conceal the regret she already felt. Not from me. She seemed hardly aware of the men who came to her, one or two at a time, to drop dollar bills at her feet, and wholly unaware of the decidedly predatory attention emanating from old Wolfman Jack over there, sharing a table with Marty the bartender. 
Marty with a gun, I then noted, as he stood from the table to come back to the bar, seeing me for the first time. Are you kidding? No chance. Then why are you here? Isn't it obvious? I'm here for you, Cheryl. She shook her head at me, more baffled than ever. Don't you remember me? But of course she didn't. She wouldn't have remembered a thing. She lay in the tub, her eyes half-lidded. Her flesh was pale, almost translucent, the more so because the bathwater had gone crimson with her blood. It would have been easy to mistake her for dead. Her breaths were so shallow I could barely hear them. All I could hear was her heart, straining to keep beating as she bled out into the water. It pulsed every three seconds or so, as if from far away. The letter was on the sink. Perhaps setting it down there while the tub filled up had been her last conscious action before the final decision. Next to it, the pamphlet, which read like a job opportunity to young women without any experience or marketable skills. She had considered it, perhaps a good while, before it had hit her. Is this what my life has come to? On the rim of the tub, a handheld wood shaver with a blood-smeared blade. I knelt by the tub, skimming her note in one hand while peeling back an eyelid with the other. It fluttered under my thumb, that eyelid, but she wasn't seeing anything. She was practically all pupils under there. I sought her mind, her very nervous system, for additional clues. I have a talent for being able to read into the source of others' misery, or fears, or insecurities. All very vague, and nowhere nearly as useful as, say, actual telepathy. But damned good if I want to make some dumb son of a bitch really feel it at the end. I always know just what to say. But I wasn't hungry. I was fresh from a kill. The resident security asshole lived in the apartment just underneath this one. An obvious choice. Kill the security, and you don't have to worry about security while killing someone else. I'd heard the tub come on. Heard the crying. Pained little gasps. Smelled the blood. Found it interesting. Now here she was and fading fast as I split the flesh of my thumb with a snap of my fingers and drew the young woman's hand from the water. I held my thumb over her split wrist. I bled into it, just a drop or two, until her heartbeat picked up a little. Her still, blind eyes fluttered open, her pupils retracting to black specks in a sea of cobalt blue. And then I let her hand go again, back into the water, and finished reading Cheryl's account of herself. Oh, but she had been a bad little thing, hadn't she? Amusing, though. I might have even liked her. I crumpled her suicide note, 
tossed it into the toilet. I turned over the pamphlet on the sink, fished a pen from the inside pocket of my jacket. On it, I scribbled a note of my own. Fucking live. And left her there. She studied me, her eyes narrowing. That was you? I didn't answer. My mind was preoccupied. Marty, the bartender, would be on us in seconds. Wolfman Jack was standing out of his chair. The full moon cage dancers were leading their first amateur of the night out onto the stage proper, one at either arm, as though bringing her out for a bow the bar bouncers were opening the back door, which, I judged by the inrush of wind, led to the outside, and weaving through the scene, blending in with everyone and everything as if he wasn't even there, a nondescript figure in a black shirt and tan khakis, steadily working his way closer and closer to the center of the room. Wolfman Jack turned with a start, his nose twitching. But by then, Casper had disappeared, and no one else even noticed. You're good. So damned good. Who are you? What... what did you do to me? I saved your life. I'll do it again, if you let me. By then... The cage dancers had turned over their inexperienced young initiate to the bouncers, who guided her to the door. The nameless young waif looked helplessly over her shoulder, the first real doubt and fear of the night finally dawning on her. They nudged her through it, but didn't follow. I turned in my seat. Listen to me, Cheryl. This place is a meat grinder. And you're on the menu. We need to get you out of here. But before I take you with me, I need you to answer one question. She blinked at me, made as though to rise from her seat and leave. You're crazy. Ladies! Marty called to us, cutting her off, his eyes running me up and down. He stopped right in front of me. And aren't you a vision? Wolfman Jack, regathering himself, casting one more wary glance my way, snapped his fingers and went for the door through which Little Miss Innocent had just passed. Two others rose to follow him. Two others that, I suddenly realized, carried the same scent as him. No. I think that's all of them. Be careful. What's the matter, honey? Marty crinkled his nose at me, mocking me. Then, with his pointing finger alternating between us. Oh, you two friends? Cheryl and I shared a look. I shrugged. Are we? Look, are you here to get naked, or are you some kind of, oh, hell, what's the words, emotional support for your gal pal? I could put you up together if you'd be more comfortable that way. I 
forced a giggle, made it sound nervous. <laughs> I, um, think I need a drink first. I absently drew my hair over the front of my shoulders. That okay? He didn't ask what kind. He grinned. He ambled around the side of the bar and re-emerged behind it, setting a bottle out in front of him. Lips closed. I ran my tongue over my teeth, felt the edges come. I took a deep breath in through my nose. He was 35 years old. Healthy. Good blood. Not great, but good. I turned away from Cheryl, facing Marty, who stood maybe five feet away. But the question was for her. Would you kill to live forever? It was an odd question, I know, to ask of a person who had tried to end her own life the day before. But Cheryl might have a new perspective today. She would have awoken from her fugue, from the loss of all that blood, with renewed vigor. She would have felt, for a short while, better than she had ever felt in her life. She would have been more aware, more tuned into things. The critical question was, had it thrilled her or terrified her? Under the music, beneath the din, I could still make out the whisper of her answer. What are you? Marty dropped ice into a glass, pouring a generous shot of apricot-scented liquor after it. One courage coming up. Again, he came around the bar to deliver it, as though to sit next to me instead of manning his post, instead of keeping his damned distance. I stood from the bar stool. I waited for him. But when he again put himself in front of me, drink in hand, I didn't hesitate. Quick as a cobra, I pulled him in, face first as though for a kiss, hungry and aggressive. His eyes widened as my teeth grew in his mouth, as they impaled him through the gums. He would have screamed if he could, if twin locks of my hair hadn't snaked around his throat and cinched his windpipe shut. His hand with the glass slammed over the bar, sloshing southern comfort over the rim. His other hand fumbled across his waist to get the gun on his belt. A forty-five revolver, as powerful as they came, and which would be utterly useless, even if he got to draw it. He never did. I was faster than him. Faster than any mortal in this world. With my hair... I held him in the kiss, freeing my hands, never allowing any blood to pass from his lips. I wrenched the gun from his belt, leaving a hand on top of it on the bar while I drew from his mouth, sucking his tongue free and swallowing it while the twin cords of my hair constricted ever tighter around his throat. For seconds, well after he was dead, I drank from him just long enough to ensure he wouldn't dribble too much when I pulled back. (sighs) 
Cheryl, as I could now see through my peripheral vision, was off her stool, windbreaker in hand, backing away with her hand over her mouth. It was no worse a reaction than I'd expected. And Casper was already there, waiting for her, before she got too far out onto the floor. He took her by the shoulders from behind, causing her to jump, then whispered sweet, calming words into her ear. Do not be afraid, my sweet. It's already over. I've got you. You need never fear anything ever again. Until she relaxed. He descended on her, his face buried in the crook of her shoulder and neck, right out on the floor in front of everyone. Bar scum called out to them. Lady, get over here. Let me show you what a real man can do. Get her on stage, hoss. Don't hug her to yourself. And even from one of the cops, laughing between swigs of his beer. <laughs> Go ahead, miss. I ain't gonna bust you. I doubt Cheryl heard any of it. As for me and Marty, no one had taken much notice of us yet. I imagine he'd kissed and groped his share of women here in front of everyone in his day. Women who didn't know any better, or thought they didn't have a choice. I relaxed the tendrils around his throat, eased back from him, picked up what was left of the drink and lifted it to my lips, drooled a few of his teeth into it. I eased him onto a bar stool rested his face and his hands on the bar. Didn't look too suspicious, I hoped. Just a proprietor having too much fun at his own party. The ruse wouldn't last, though. We had to be gone. And yet, one couldn't help but be curious. Casper, we have to know. He looked up from Cheryl. Ignoring all else, seeing only me, his voice in my brain. Yes, and if they truly are what they seem to be, we'll have to tell Grandfather. Trust me, I don't like it any more than you do. I glared at him. These things, my little Tempest, they can't be allowed to live. Grandfather, and every devil in the Cabal, would agree. The North American Wolfman, or Howler, was rumored to multiply its numbers without restraint, to spread like living napalm wherever it cropped up. Personally, I didn't see the problem with that. Only natural, really. But I was in no mood to share my corner of the world with them. Oh, hell no. We needed a distraction. Casper nodded to me, then turned his attention back to Cheryl. He locked eyes with her. He spoke to her with love and reassurance, an older brother offering encouragement. His teeth were now normal, but still smelled faintly of her blood. Listen to me, Cheryl Carmichael. 
When I let you go, you will go to the stage. Do you understand? Yes. You will dance for these people. Do what they tell you to do. Make them happy. It doesn't matter anymore. Do you understand? Yes. Casper let her go. I turned from them, ignoring a few calls and solicitations now being tossed my way. They ended quickly enough when the full moon cage dancers went for Cheryl, leading her away from Casper and towards the stage. No eyes on Marty. That much was good. I tested the weight of his gun in my hand. Normal. No silver. Just wasn't born that lucky. They can't be allowed to live, Casper had said. That was true enough. As for telling Grandfather, we'd just see about When the house lights went down and the stage lights went up, yellow and green, purple and blue, then flashing red, none of it really qualifying as illumination in this dim, smoke-filled cesspool, I let my body melt away. I became, again, that singular expression of my immortal form, absorbing my clothes and my possessions into my tangible self before letting go. Before filling the creases and cracks of the floorboards as a living current of blood. The bouncers remained by the door, which they had closed again. I wasn't too fussed about them. I could kill them both with no trouble at all. I was far more concerned with what lay beyond that door. There would be by my earlier count, at least three of them. I could already hear them, focusing my hearing on that door, through that door. Bones crunching, flesh being shredded, hungry mouths gurgling down their supper. If there had been any screaming, it was over now. Straight between the spread feet of one of the bouncers I slithered, as good as invisible to their distracted eyes. They were watching Cheryl, enjoying the show and sizing her up. What payment did they owe these monsters? Two bodies every full moon? Three? As many as they could acquire? What did they get in return? It didn't matter. People, for the most part, are shit. Likely as not, they did it for fun. As for the show, I didn't watch. I never saw any of it. And if everything went just right and Cheryl made it through to the next night, she wouldn't remember anyway. It was on Casper to bring her over, to escort her into the never-ending night. He had reached childhood's end five years ago. He was alive. I had... Well, I had some time yet to go. My job lay in front of me. It was all that mattered. I slid under the door. And what I saw on the other side of it was so fucked up, 
It's difficult to describe. I'll try anyway. The back lot of the full moon corral opened into something like an open-air garage or carport. Two walls of steel and a concrete floor, but the roof, also steel, was retractable. It had been drawn back, allowing the full power of the moon to shine down on everything in it. In the middle of either wall was a built-in tower of steel scaffolding, both with flattened rungs for steps. Atop each one was a sentinel, or guard, or fucking game warden, I don't know, armed with a shotgun. Across the vest of each guard, a belt of buckshot cartridges. On the floor, three cages of dull, blackened metal, presumably to house the monsters when they were done with their feeding until the dawn of a new day. Would they go to them willingly? Was there silver, perchance, in the buckshot? A little packet of glittering death pebbles just for the howlers, so that they knew not to run away, to go rampaging through the town, or back into the bar. Did the creatures, rabid in their frenzy of their dinner, know all of this? The dinner in question, it appeared to me, was about done. There wasn't much left of the young woman who had come to dance at the full moon corral. Two of the howlers shared most of her, one of them peeling the bone of an arm clean with its teeth, the other almost daintily setting her insides into a bucket, as though it was finicky about such things. They were younger than the third one, the Alpha. Wolfman Jack had the woman's head all to himself. He'd taken the top of her skull off. His snout was buried deep in it, but the wide cavity he had dug into her head must have been mostly empty of brain and spinal tissue. He was licking the remains from the inside, his absurdly long tongue periodically sneaking out from the bottom of her neck. All of them, the three monsters in this hellhole, were still dressed in their clothes from the bar. They were, I judged, half-human in form, although grown to perhaps an average of seven feet when standing. The hair poking out from their sleeves and the cuffs of their pants bristled and sparkled under moonlight, whereas the claws, like their eyes, were a deep orange, curled at the ends for better shredding. They'll run on two feet, like people... I thought, allowing myself to take on form, to rise up on the inside of the back door where I could be plainly seen. They won't use their hands for that. The game warden on the left noticed me first. What the shit? What the hell are you? One could hardly blame the howlers for being distracted. They were at dinner. But then the game warden fired at me, and that got their attention. I lunged forward at a run, feeling the tail of the buckshot cloud ripple across my jacket. I could have killed him at any time, really, but I needed to observe the action of the gun. I'd never fired a Remington 12-gauge before. Also, I had no intention of getting hit. Even regular buckshot 
taken head-on fucking hurts. And yes, I could smell it as the balls whizzed past me. Knew it from years of dusting my nail polish with it before it became an annoyance. They were packed with pellets of silver. I definitely didn't want to get hit with that. In moments, the second guard was taking aim. Screaming as he tried to concentrate, no doubt realizing something new was at the full moon corral tonight, as I darted first this way and then that, hardly to be seen as more than a blur while I crossed and crisscrossed the room. The howlers sat straight up on their haunches when the buckshot started to fly. Close up, the blast of a shotgun is pretty focused, especially when it's a proper slug. But buckshot, especially when packed with a metal as heavy as silver, fans out almost as soon as it leaves the barrel. I had dodged three of these clouds so far. I couldn't keep it up forever. Sooner or later, they'd stop aiming where I was and start aiming where they thought I would be at the critical moment. And they might get lucky. Already... One of the younger wolfmen had taken a whiff of silver pellets to the side of the face and his pointy little ear, which hung half off and smoked like a damp wood fire. Time to end this. Straight up the scaffolding I went, again dissipating along the way, ignoring the hollering above me, the screams of terror and disbelief. Below me, The injured wolfman did nothing but hold the perforated side of his face with one misshapen hand and pound the floor with the other, howling in misery. His fellows, however, especially Wolfman Jack, were more focused. That one came right up behind me, and he was quick, hauling himself up in a mad, monkey-like scramble, the other following behind. On the platform, Game Warden Number 1 was just now reloading, having slapped one packed round of shot into the chamber port and working in more through the bottom by the trigger guard. I wasn't able to grab the gun before he raised it to me. My hand was still a bloody, half-formed nothing, so I splashed down yet again right before the gun went off. Fresh screams from the other tower. Game Warden number two had just taken the cloud of silver buckshot. An accident that, in its realization, slowed down the first enough for me to seize him by the neck from behind. Lean in for a quick love bite just over the shoulder. Take the weapon and swing it by the barrel so that its long, heavy wooden hilt connected with the side of his head. Down he went face first, onto the hard floor with a thump, and where the injured young wolfman suddenly reared and pounced on him. Payback's a bitch. Aim better next time. Then, motherfucker, someone shouted, and damn it all if it wasn't me, because Wolfman Jack now had my ankle in his jaws raking his teeth over them, crunching bone, shaking his head back and forth like a shark with a baby seal. Furious, mostly with myself, I grabbed onto a support strut and kicked him with my other foot. 
What was it they said about dumbasses who got bitten by a wolfman and lived? You don't qualify. Kind of dead already. Fuck it, just see how things go next month. Shit to do here. Jesus, the thing had my foot half off. Even while the foot in question worked to regenerate. Meanwhile, Wolfman Jack's uninjured buddy had swung around to the opposite side of the platform and gotten my other leg. Motherfucker! I let go of the strut, turned the shotgun so that I held it properly, pulled back on the pump action, and pointed. I even gave a little dog whistle. And wouldn't you know it? Wolfman Jack actually looked up. Really? I blew his head off. It was a strangely clean kill. The top of his skull sheared off at the forehead, like he'd stood up in a pickup truck before passing under a low bridge. Before he dropped, I got a good look at him with only his lower jaw, no face at all. Then I turned for the other one. It's difficult to stand, much less pivot, when both of your ankles are half chewed through. That's the end of these boots. Damn, boots were expensive. I do go shopping time to time. Girls gotta spend her money, right? Anyway, I leaned over, working the pump action of the shotgun. Focusing on his hindquarters, trying to find a shot that wouldn't take my own leg with it. In the background, through the door, I could hear tumult in the bar. Either Casper had gone to work in there, or they were reacting to the noise out here, where, from a ways off and around the corner, I could hear more voices headed my way. Police. Probably half of Evangel Baptists, too. And now I could smell... What? Fire. Oh, this was getting interesting. The shot wasn't there, and the concrete floor was empty of all save the corpses of two game wardens and the remains of an amateur night contestant, half of it in a chum bucket. Where the hell? That was when the injured howler, he of the hanging ear flap, took me from behind, twisting my hair in his thick, sharp, disgusting orange talons as he leaned in to eat his way through the back of my head. Long hair does get in the way of things. But my hair has a will of its own, too. Sometimes it does shit I don't expect. As I felt the wolfman's wet breath on the back of my neck, As I screamed in outrage and frustration, my fucking hair gathered around the shirt cuffs of the injured howler and heaved him forward over my head. This move, questionable in its wisdom, sent all three of us over the tower and onto the hard floor. Yet I was free of both of them. I reared up on my hands and knees, hair curling and snapping in the wind like bullwhips. Quite pissed off on its own account, and found that the two howlers lay on either side of me, one face down and the other up. 
While they were still gathering themselves, I scurried forward for the shotgun, which had clattered just three feet away. They were behind me, coming fast, claws scrabbling over concrete. But they just weren't Strigoi now, were they? I was up again, my ankles mostly intact, shotgun held before me at waist level. Here, doggy. I worked the pump action, blasting the uninjured one in half at the hips, who came apart in a detonation of blood and bone and entrails that painted half the floor. The injured one stopped, panting, tongue lolling out, its misshapen and overlarge hands held out in front of it, talons up in supplication, whining in a way that was half monster, half man. Good dog. I sent the final spray of shot through its neck, decapitating him. The door to the bar swung open, and the two cops came in, shooting first, no questions. The first shot took me in the heart, the second right between my goddamned eyes. Motherfucker. Fire in the background. Screams from inside the building and coming around the side of it. I wondered whether the cops had had silver bullets as well. I dropped to my knees, let go of the shotgun, closed my eyes, and allowed the darkness to take me. Turned out, the bullets weren't silver. A good thing, too. Silver wouldn't kill me, but it does set one back. Leave scars, too. And I'm not having scars. As for the blackout, that didn't really happen. There was a full-on mob scene brewing, both from the patrons fleeing the full moon corral, which was burning merrily thanks to the protesters who had overpowered the cops outside, and from a second gang of them coming around to the open end of the Wolfman Game Preserve. So, I decided to play possum, just to see what would happen before I took my exit, stage whatever. No one would doubt I was dead. I mean, what the hell, I actually was. And I'd taken two solid kill shots from a pair of 357s anyway. Now there was a blanket over me, head to toe. They were taking me out on a stretcher, going the long way from the back around to the front and the parking lot. I scrunched my eyes, wrinkled my brow, and pushed the bullets out with an effort of will. First from my skull, then from my chest listening to them patter down onto either side of the stretcher. I knew, without being able to look, that the dirty white pinto would still be out there, but no one would be inside of it. Its owner, most likely, would be in the back of a midnight blue Econoline van, which Casper would be driving to some remote, out-of-the-way place, far from the attention of ordinary people. There, Casper would bring her to the half-life and present her with an ultimatum. Kill now, or die forever. Because Casper's scent, and Cheryl's, 
was simply nowhere to be detected. Instead, I smelled the congregation of Evangel Baptist, the Reverend and his daughter Joletta, several others. They were gathered around us in a wide circle, singing one ridiculous old hymn or another, celebrating the destruction of this den of iniquity in song. The cops had given up trying to disperse them. Distantly, I heard one of them on his CB radio, calling for the fire department and an ambulance. Another spoke to Reverend Dorsey. No idea. Thought maybe she came from your neck of the woods, from West Chapel. Anything you can do for, you know, her eternal home and all that? It ain't exactly last rites. I'm no Catholic, Officer Drew. And you said this one passed on anyway. But I will do what I can to put in a good word for her with Almighty God. Can't ask for more than that, Father. The Reverend Mordecai then leaned over me, drawing the blanket down from my face. Immediately, the headache set back in. A stupid cross on his lapel. <laughs> the soft laughter under his rancid breath. His hand over my chest. His left hand, I noted, remembering what I had done to the middle finger on his right. I kept my eyes closed, willed my heart to slow long enough to avoid detection. I was honestly curious what the old snake charmer had to say. Quietly, so that no one would hear, would only see his lips move, he said... I commend your soul to hell, you worthless slut. Whoever you are, it's where you belong. Oh? I opened my eyes. I took his left hand, bent the middle finger back until I heard it snap. I watched his eyes go wide. The name's Summer, you goat-fucking-redneck. And... Before anyone could do anything, including him, I let his hand go, took him by both sides of his face, and wrenched his head around backwards. In the background, screams, especially from Joletta. I did you a favor, you know. I pushed him off me, watching the police draw their weapons. They were going to kill me all over again. I dissipated, blood straight through the stretcher like it was a cheesecloth strainer. I went into the earth, through every dark crevice or fault or anthill I could find, and left. Later, Walking the side of the highway back into southern Pennsylvania with my thumb at the ready, mourning the abandonment of my new Mustang. But overall, not too displeased with the evening's adventures, the thought struck. Cheryl would be popular with the Cabal. She was a traditional choice, unlike those others. She met every requirement. I knew it from only reading her suicide note and by what I had seen of her. The subject for conversion must not be religious. She wasn't. She'd referred to the zealots of Evangel Baptist as 
freaks. The subject for conversion must not be younger than 20, nor older than 30. Check. She was 24, although she looked younger than that. Also a plus in the eyes of Grandfather. The subject for conversion must be unhappy with his or her life. Well, she tried to kill herself, hadn't she? The subject for conversion must demonstrate the ability to influence others. That was where the suicide note came in. At school, while doubling as a cheerleader and auditioning for a job with the Colts, she'd majored in journalism, had an internship at the Baltimore Sun. There, she'd let it slip that certain other women on the squad were involved in illicit relationships with prominent players on the team. Married players. All bullshit, but people had believed her. Important people. The subject for conversion must demonstrate sociopathic behavior. Yes. Oh, yes. Quite a lot of it, by her own account. But what stood out to me was that her decision to end her own life hadn't been based on guilt over what she had done. That never came up in her letter. No. She had gone through all that trouble, gotten five other women dismissed from the squad, and then she had still failed to make the cut. Christ on plywood, who the fuck wanted to be a goddamned cheerleader? Living your whole misdirected existence just to root for men on a professional level? The thought would have made me ill if I ever got ill. But I liked her. I liked her spirit, fractured though it was. Such things could be healed. In time, maybe I'd come to understand her better. Casper would like her too. She was new. Unlike the others, and for the first time in her life, she was going to make it. The Cabal would approve. Even Angus would approve. By now, Casper would be waking her. She'd have to go on the hunt right away. No time to wait for me. Sisters, I thought putting one foot in front of the other. Pain in my ass. Behind me, an engine. I shook the thoughts from my head, stuck my thumb out. And there it was, headlights off, its driver wearing sunglasses. It was the Econoline. There was no one in the passenger seat. It pulled up alongside me and stopped. Moments later, the side door swung open. Does the young lady fancy a ride? Inside, I could smell her. Still dead. Cutting it a bit short for a conversion night, aren't we? No time to waste, then. Is something wrong? I shrugged, absently kicking a stone to the side of the road. Troubling you. What troubled me, when I was able to admit it to myself, was that we would be successful this time. Things were about to change. For real. And for a long, long time. 
nothing. I hoped he hadn't been reading me just then. Just figured by now the two of you would be taking care of business, that's all. Casper held his hand out to me, a sly smile playing on his lips. Without you, dearest Summer, never without you. I looked at him with my head lowered, eyes upturned. He seemed sincere. In spite of myself, I smiled back at him, took his hand, and stepped inside. The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.